and that really changed. You know, that first week of painting um, the cliff at Alto Pass, you know, you, all you have are the tops of trees and sky. And I thought I knew some things about handling color, and I thought I knew some things about how to neutralize or shift color the way that I wanted to. And, yeah, landscape painting just really put it to me. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 155th episode, I'm joined by Ben Cohan, who is an old studio mate, friend, and painter. We talk about his evolution as well as his most recent series, which will be featured in an upcoming solo exhibition this Friday, December 11th at Jan Brandt Gallery. It's entitled Belonging, so please come out and check it out. And of course, check out his work before you get into this podcast. I would be remiss if I didn't let new listeners know that Studio Break also has a variety of different episodes, all archived on studiobreak.com, so please check them out. They're all free. Again, each of them have these lengthy interviews, images of the artist's work, links to their website, so you can check them all out. Again, the archive feature is right on the homepage on the left sidebar. You can also find a link to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And, of course, you can reach us and reach out to us in a number of different ways, so please do that. Again, you can like and follow our Facebook page to stay up to date. You can follow our Tumblr page that's studio-break.tumblr, you know, if that's your thing. And, of course, you can tweet us and send us cool art at Studio Break on Twitter. So please hit us up in those places. Say hello. And, of course, please stay tuned for this podcast with Ben Cohan. Welcome to Studio Break, Ben Cohan. How are you this afternoon tucking uh, the kids in and, and making room for a podcast? I appreciate it. <laughs> I'm doing good, Dave. Thanks for having me. Um, again, it's it's been kind of a long time coming. Obviously, we have shared studio space in graduate school for, I don't know, maybe what, like a little over a year or something like that. And then I yeah. lived in your garage and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> made work in there for a bit. So yeah, good to have you on. A, cooked up a mess of food. That was good. So... Again, it's kind of interesting as we were just talking about, you know, just to kind of unpack your, your trajectory. And again, I kind of feel like I was there for a bit of it. And then, you know, you were just saying, kind of looking back, kind of maybe it would be interesting to kind of talk about how these works evolved. Um, and so I guess just before I yap and we'll have to cut out more and more stuff, um, where, are, where are you at uh, right now speaking with me? I am in our home in Sullivan, Illinois. And... Uh, where exactly? <laughs> it's about an hour hour <laughs> south of Champaign, where right the on. U of I is. Yeah, yeah. So we're pretty near to uh, Decatur and pretty near to Charleston, and yeah, everything's about thirty forty minutes away. Did you essentially grow up and live in the same place that you, you know, kind of uh, work now? Grew up here in the outskirts of Sullivan, so. I had a Sullivan address and a Kirksville phone number, and I went to Bethany schools. So it was kind of this like nebulous country area that didn't really have much to offer in the way of town. So we had to go to town, and yeah, then I went off to college, lived at home for the first two years, went to Lakeland for that stretch, and then moved on to Millican in Decatur and lived there 
So still in the surrounding area. And then when I applied to grad schools or a few places that uh, accepted me and wound up down at Southern, as you know. So mm-hmm. I lived down there for a while. And when everybody was on the job hunt, I was able to find work at Lakeland in Mattoon where I uh, did my first two years. So came back to the area. My wife, Amy, and I were both teaching and Sullivan was equidistant from our job. So it was pretty fortunate that we were able to live here and have a, uh, you know, an equitable commute sure. northwest, northwest and southeast. So yeah, it's kind of interesting to kind of you know eventually kind of be back to where you where it all started. And again, I know one of the things that's really interesting is it seems like that idea of community or family, even though it's not maybe always taking a precedent in the work, is something that is always kind of a you know where you're from is really important to you. Yeah, and the work that you got to see kind of manifest when we were at uh, Southern together. I was just talking about it with one of the faculty on campus who's a good friend, and she's in the psychology department, so I always feel like I'm spilling the beans to her. <laughs> in, a, in a weird way, I feel like I have to offer her more. Either if I don't say it, then then she'll jump to it. And uh, so, yeah, I was talking about my thesis work which were these sort of split landscapes um, in the rurality series. And, and they ended up in my mind sort of being about home and my home there and my home here and the, the commute back and forth for various things. Cause we were, I don't know, planning a wedding and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how that goes. And, sure. Uh, family was here. So big family events were going on with births and other weddings and funerals and everything else. So I, I was still kind of tethered to this place and, a lot of those uh, images came from photographing that drive back and forth. So the more I analyzed it, it was more about adult home and childhood home and then childhood home now becoming adult home is really pretty interesting. Yeah. No (sighs) doubt you're, you're a father, you know, you've got children. Um, Again, it's, it's interesting to kind of think about that, especially, you know, again, just the context of where you grew up being, you know, the place that you live now and. Oh, no, (laughs) I was going to ask you, though, one thing that I'm really curious about, you know, and again, I think it it obviously um, to kind of look at the the most current series and Mm -hmm. I'm jumping way ahead here. Obviously, uh, family is important to you in terms of that. But I'm curious, were there other artists in the family? Were you kind of encouraged? Um, I know that you are a musician as well, but I mean, was that something that was always at home, you know, that encouragement? Well, the uh, support system was always there. Absolutely. I think I have this talk a lot with the freshman and sophomore students that I advise because it's a two-year school and you get a lot of people who are not quite certain of their path and their parents are sort of in their ear about why would they choose art as a major. And um, on occasion, you get the people who have that strong support system and it kind of carries them in a different uh, in a different way. And then you get the people who are really conflicted at home. And I never had that. And so I have to sort of empathize and and strategize with those kids about what it is they can do to um, affirm what they've chosen for a major. I I had somebody, you know, in the family kind of leaning on me to do graphic design. And they saw, you know, back in early 2000s when I was a freshman, uh, they saw like this potential to earn and, Mm um, I think, you know, graphic design anymore is as competitive as anything else, if not more. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the one, you know, it was in the field. It's the one person saying, like, here's something in your field. 
that's maybe a bit more marketable and employable. And um, outside of that, though, mom and dad were, I'm sure, curious mm-hmm. about how it was going to go. But they were very encouraging at the same time. I had two older sisters, one that was in accounting and one that was uh, studying education. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really have like siblings in the arts. Um, but my great-grandmother was uh, sort of, I think, what she would have called a hobbyist, even though she had some commissions here in town mm-hmm. um, to do some historic building paintings. Uh, chiefly, she did one in the First National Bank here in Sullivan. Mm-hmm. And um, that was pretty interesting to find out later in my life that she had studied painting a little bit through workshops and was part of the art club and did some writing. That was pretty interesting. I just got my hands on a play that she wrote recently and read it this summer. Yeah, yeah. So she was kind of the um, North Star, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> at yeah. hundred, she she passed away at one hundred and two. So we had Man. this really interesting like age gap, and um, we tried to, you know, keep each other up to date on what we were making. It was a lot of fun. Interesting. Um, and were you really active in terms of just making stuff when you were a kid? I mean, were you like getting mud everywhere and rubbing <laughs> it on your face and I don't know, you know, but was drawing and painting like something that you started at an early age or like in high school or. Again, I think I've had this conversation with some of the advising, uh, <laughs> uh students that I, you know, we're trying it, to draft you for this job. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's just kind of, uh, my earliest recollection of it is more in the like fourth, fifth and sixth grade range. Mm-hmm. I don't know what do they call that middle school. It's not junior high, but whatever. Uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. I think I was drawing from uh, the Peanuts Gang cartoon. Mm-hmm. My fourth grade teacher really liked Snoopy, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that was just like um, super manipulative of me mm-hmm. to draw that, but I think I really liked the comic at the time, and Snoopy was relatively easy to draw. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of friends of mine and I started drawing, you know, Marvel comics. Um, which anybody hearing this and then looking at the website is um, probably scratching their heads as to where <laughs> any any trace of that has gone. That was what I really thought I wanted to do, and uh, I don't. I think you know, drawing one class really opened my eyes to uh, to what it was, what it meant to be an art major, and I got really fascinated with all the different studio arts um, available and and. It's not that I didn't still have that itch to be in the comic industry. I think I wanted to be an inker of some sort. Now I know people who do it, and I'm still kind of envious of that. But that never really st- stuck with me. Mm-hmm. I was more—I was kind of caught up in all these ways of seeing that you get out of drawing one and um, the the trial and error of making some of my first oil paintings. And sure, sure. High school, high school art wasn't necessarily something that I just glazed over. You know, we really, uh, or a small group of friends, or we really put our backs into it. We were in there making things and enjoyed making things, but I don't think my parents would say, "Oh, he was always right <laughs> doing this." I, uh, maybe they would. I'm not sure. You'll have to call them and see what they say. So that would be a. You should do that with some of your interview subjects like we're going to call your parents and see if what you <laughs> see if what you said checked out <laughs> no i think that i again i think that's interesting because i i don't know some people really start off uh knowing some people kind of find out you know in their mid-30s um mm-hmm. it's kind of weird um but again it always winds up being so different for everyone did you 
I, I guess maybe this is covered in previous interviews you've had with people, but when did you know? I, I, I still don't. I've ever asked you that. I still don't know. <laughs> Every once in a while, I can get some get a painting done, and it seems like I get some encouragement. I'm like, oh, okay, I can do this, maybe. <laughs> um, I suppose that's true for all of us. It's kind of a uh, you're rolling the dice each time you put something to paper, you know. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting because it, for me, again, I kind of think about something similar, but I just remember, you know, my dismissive self, which is. You know, again, I, I go by many names uh, that people have given me, including Diabolical Dave and uh, Nihilist Dave. You know, I just remember, like, graduating, like, I want to say high school or something and just being like, there's no way I'm doing this for a living. <laughs> and my grandfather was like, I don't know, you shouldn't be so dismissive. Um, <laughs> so it seems like that that fight is always there, which is, again, kind of interesting, you know, the longer that you kind of get more involved in it. And I guess to kind of continue this forward then, so you started your degree, finished up at, at Milliken. What was it like there? Because I, I, I know, again, you know, from reputation and in terms of some of the people that we know and, mm-hmm. you know, you certainly hear uh, uh, people like Lyle uh, kind of thrown about. Um, is, is he the, the teacher that kind of really got you into you know, painting specifically? I suppose that's true to a degree, but I had a mentor in Jody Birdwell um, at Lakeland for the first two years. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't I don't know how many people really put this sort of, um, I don't know if it's a, a mantle or a burden that they put on their drawing one instructors, but I had, mm-hmm. <laughs> I had her for drawing one. And when you have gone so long, you know, say, let's say it started in fifth or fourth grade, um, copying from someone else's creative production, you're just sort of like imitating what they've drawn. Then when someone actually urges you to look at what you're drawing and put away preconceived notions of what it is you think you're seeing, uh, that's a really big deal. And so she, she sort of, well, I've told her many times cause I, I work with her now, which is a really rare opportunity, but I've told her that she ruined me. <laughs> she ru- she ruined the way that I saw. She wrecked everything in in the best possible way. So I mean, she was the one that sort of pulled the blindfold off, and you know, got me thinking about perception and, and objective work. But she also has this really great knack for abstraction, and so she was kind of playing this dual role in the first two years, and allowed me to do some things that, looking back on it, I kind of can't believe I did at. 18, 18 and 19 years old, um, in terms of production. And then I guess I was fortunate enough to, um, end up at Milliken with professor Salmi. You mentioned Lyle, uh, Lyle Salmi. And, and so, yeah, he really pushed the work ethic that Jody set up and there was just a good group there at the time. Um, you know, I ran around with a lot of people there, but, uh, those of us that were in the studio kind of in a unit really, really fed off of each other. And there were some upperclassmen that really fueled me and the uh, other juniors to, to produce and to produce strong work Mm -hmm. and to think critically about it. And and that was kind of the incubator for more research and for more of that broadening of your sort of visual sensibilities and what those things amount to. And, and yeah, Lyle was pretty instrumental in that. It was very, um, investigative. I haven't looked back at those sketchbooks for a long time, but I imagine they're mostly 
writing and not drawing mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> writing writing trying to figure out what in the world is going on in this new place because you pick up and move on every two years it's a weird you know it's a new kid in school three times and that was all art school you know that was first two years of college second two years and then grad school i felt like the new kid each time so it was, it was good to be under his tutelage his uh his wing i suppose he did a lot for me absolutely they both did and I was going to say, as everyone knows from watching, you know, shows like 90210, uh, the new the new kid is, whoa, you know, or Saved by the Bell. Sorry. That, that could be – I should have a <laughs> – anyways, again, maybe there's going to be a lot of editing as I keep saying. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it didn't, really, it didn't really feel like the TV version. But Lyle <laughs> said uh, – you know, he said, here's Ray and here's Rob. Uh, that's Ray Nelly and Rob Fifield. Uh, and then he kind of heel-toed. He just kind of walked away. They were seniors and, and yeah, then those guys worked uh, relentlessly. And so, you know, they kind of fostered that in me and some of the others that uh, followed. And then we all kind of banded together because of it. So, and, yeah, Lyle, Lyle has his ways. Um, he's kind of a, a mystic. I'm not, you never really know. I never felt like I really knew what he was doing to me <laughs> i think he came in one time and said can you make a painting without yellow and then just kind of looked at me and i said yes and it was a kind of uh, a little, you know upward inflection and he said okay and then he left i think that's how i remember it i have to <laughs> double check with him and and i don't know exactly all the details but that was i remember that question that was very strange <laughs> And well, then I I would get grade slips that said things like "What is form?" They wouldn't have comments about the work. <laughs> they would just say "What is form?" And and you know then that's why the sketchbooks are full of writing instead of drawing. Well, I was going to ask you. So, like, what kind of paintings were you making then? I guess when you were kind of in that BFA, you know, grind. You know, when you're like around like the first people that are like, "I want to do, I want to paint, or I want to make art, or you know, yeah." They kind of had that drive. So, um, I think I was doing some language-based stuff like some there there was some text in there and it was being met with kind of like lukewarm (laughs) reception Mm -hmm. and uh i didn't really know enough about you know some of the heavier hitters with text-based work i just kind of found these phrases interesting and Mm -hmm. i think what kind of set me on the path i i got on was i would take these photographs of uh like close-ups of the broad size of boxcars. Mm-hmm. And so there were these sort of like fragmented views of these really worn and rusted surfaces and um, a lot of dripping, a lot of like galket and turpentine mixed into the paint. So you get these really washed layers. And I think that's what I did. That's what I had for my uh, junior review because they do a sophomore review, but I transferred. So mm-hmm. kind of plugged me into that process. And I had a handful of those and I had this, you know, great big plan for how that could go on for another year. And, uh, again, Lyle kind of came in and and poked at that logic and said, uh, you know, are the photos important? And I didn't have a good answer in the moment. And then he said, uh, it seems like you're interested in structure. And so then it kind of branched out to fragments of architecture and things that interest me visually, like, uh, sidewalk, I think inevitably I ran into, uh, he, he put me in front of the, um, 
Art of Richard Diebenkorn book. And so my BFA was kind of like a, a, a series of love notes to Richard Diebenkorn. Were you kind of like working like directly from a photograph? Were you kind of collaging photographs and kind of matching like parts that you liked and incorporating different ones? Or Yeah, it was kind of just, um, you know, walk up to a stop train and get kind of these <laughs> get these uh, shots from ground level. Mm-hmm. And and so you get uh, the serial numbers and some gouges from uh, when they've been moved around. You get lots of rust. You get the rivets. I like the ones with the big ribs on them, those kind of rectangular supports. Uh, it wasn't a lot of tankers. It wasn't a lot of the uh, the other boxcars that sort of bowed in the middle, had a belly of sorts. I, I really liked the ones with stripes. And so they were just kind of, you know, riffs off of a photograph it wasn't too inventive mm-hmm. what what i started to do was kind of mess around with graffiti or some of the labeling you know you'd have the different railroad lines you'd have the illinois central gulf and you'd have well i won't bore you with that but you'd have all these different uh emblematic stencils i was trying to capitalize on that or inject a little bit of like personal information I changed the serial number to a friend's birth date or mm-hmm. changed, changed the logo to somebody's initials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eh, you know, not all that clever, but <laughs> it, it, you know, it was buried in there and, um, and people just sort of accepted it as being how the train looked. And, and that pleased me because I thought I was kind of being sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's kind of foolish and naive, but. Um, it allowed them to be a bit more personal and it wasn't just directly from the photograph is part of the reason I did that. And then it morphed into, boy, it morphed into, I think, figure drawing, um, figure drawing class. I started abstracting the figure and that was a big deal too. And so the ways, the, the ways in which those started getting broken down, I think led Lyle to, to put the demon corn book in front of me mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And I was talking with a student about Diebenkorn because I, I told him he needed to visit with that book and really absorb some of its content because it's really wonderful. I mean, Diebenkorn in general, you pick up a book of his, you're going to be um, you're going to be doing just fine. Mm-hmm. But the the thing that I found in Diebenkorn was uh, I think someone who saw you know the objective world through the filter that I thought I had to. Mm-hmm. And and then I realized that he was riffing off of um, Hopper and Matisse, and there was this whole lineage that I wasn't fully aware of, you know, just due to being young enough not to not to understand. And so it got me thinking about different sources and um, how to attempt using some of that information for for good, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just putting it aside. Yeah, they wound up kind of just being in drawing class. You know, it was charcoal and graphite and gesso, mm-hmm. and then in painting class, it was cohanified uh, demon <laughs> corns. <laughs> for better, for better, for worse. I think maybe looking back on them, they educated me quite a bit. But I, I see so many blatant issues. But that's that's how it goes. So I'm I'm kind of curious then, you know, like in terms of kind of following this progression, did you just wind up picking SIUC because you met 
John Reddington and myself, you know, for that visitation. You're like, these people are crazy. I'm, I'm coming here. Oh man. Well, I don't know. I don't remember the chronology of that. I think, uh, you know, the programs I got into, I toured the place, the glove factory down there is just, you know, you can't beat that. And, and, and I just felt like the people who were available on the visit were, uh, you know, really open and, the stipend money wasn't bad. I won't lie. And mm-hmm. I liked, I liked the feel of the city and, and it just seemed like a good fit. Um, I didn't know necessarily at that point that you and John knew Mike who went to Milliken. And so it was this kind of like uh lineage that we all shared. And I told someone that story lately and uh, how you had had Mike at ISU and John had, had Mike as a grad student at Bowling Green. And then, we, uh, the way I put an end on the story was we all three looked at each other and went friends, you know, <laughs> it's not what happened at all, but it was just sort of like, we all, you know, gentlemen's agreement to, to be friends and <laughs> because of this weird, uh, you know, series of events, but no, it was, it was, uh, it, it, it set itself apart from the other programs that were available. And, and mm-hmm. I feel like the thesis work I made in grad school was using the visual language I wanted to be capable of at Milliken. And I just didn't have, didn't have the language yet. Hadn't, hadn't come up with a solution yet. Cause it was still a lot about sidewalks and roads and these divisions through fields and how this guy kind of weighed on those things as a shape. I just didn't have the visual language yet. I was still kind of lost in my, my affection for Richard Diebenkorn, his, his uh, emulating his style. So, well, and I guess just to, I want to clarify something too. This yeah. is Mike Willie we were talking about, just to make sure everybody knows that. Um, sure, <laughs> but yeah. again, I think it's interesting because there's all these kind of connections that you kind of wind up seeing, and you know, just in terms of just all these all these people that you run into. So, I mean, when you're 75, um, it's got to be awesome because you're like, I, I know all these people, <laughs> all these artists through other artists. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of web. But to kind of like think about it, like in terms of you know, someone that's shared space with you. And again, I kind of concur again, like there's a lot of continuation of material exploration, abstraction, kind of pushing that. But it seems also like the landscape um, is something that became, you know, hugely important just in that, that air, you know, that experience, that time of being uh, in Carbondale. I mean, was that something that really kind of started to take hold in, in terms of, you know, your, your attention, right? It just grabbed your attention. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the two of you, you and John Reddington sort of, you know, um, we're just being good, close friends and still being good friends with me, but your, your voice, your voice says in, um, you know, sort of pushing that landscape painting class, um, mm-hmm. that Bob Paulson was teaching and, you know, you and John would say, you should take this class. It's two weeks. You go out and you paint, you know, seven to three or, or however the time broke down. And you should just do it, you know. I, I don't know that I had much choice in the matter. Actually, <laughs> it was kind of, it was kind of like Big Brothers saying, you know, come on, let's do this. And then the subsequent conversation was you saying you should really consider buying the materials he's talking about from <laughs> for, on the on the materials list. And so I invested in the smaller tubes of uh, I think some Grumbacher paints, mm-hmm. possibly because I had been using. Uh, quantity over quality and mm. 
and that really changed, you know, that first week of painting on the cliff at Alto Pass, you know, all you have are the tops of trees and sky. And I thought I knew some things about handling color. And I thought I knew some things about how to neutralize or shift color the way that I wanted to. And yeah, landscape painting just really put it to me. I, I wasn't prepared to learn as much. It was like going back to school. Um, it was all observation based. It was all trial and error. I think in that first class, because I was on pure production mode, I think I made 29 paintings in that mm-hmm. two, in that two, two weeks, which is like a, a nine day stretch. Cause you do five days the first week and then you work up to Thursday, the second week. So you can have an exhibit on Friday invite the university community and that type of thing. So 29 paintings in, in nine days, I felt like was, you know, marathon schooling. And, uh, it was wake up, go, go to the location, paint one, try to sneak one in before lunch, eat lunch, then make one after lunch. And, uh, and they weren't, they, they weren't all terribly good, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I learned some things and, you know, learned what, uh, some of those new materials would kind of do for me. And it seems strange, you know, you were talking about how long it takes to kind of reconcile what you're doing. And it seems strange that it took me that long to invest in those kinds of materials, like some pure pigments and some, you know, just a broader spectrum of warm and cool primaries that, you know, I may not have dabbled in before. So mm-hmm. it was, it was really important materially, visually, in terms of practice, I was cannibalizing old panels like, you know, nobody's business. I was chopping down old panels and sanding them off the night before we'd go out. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. crazy. It was great. It was a great experience. And I'm curious then, too. I mean, in terms of the, the series that came afterwards, the kind of like different landscape stack, the the reality series. I love saying mm-hmm. that, reality. <laughs> but, um, you know... Is it by chance that you started painting one of these landscapes on a fragment of something and you started thinking like, oh, like I could like just make these different abstract collages like from landscapes or how how did that series come about? I think because of the landscape class, I was searching for um, source imagery. So I was kind of just arbitrarily snapping photos on my drives back. It's like 156 miles back to mom and dad's from grad school. And so I just sort of point and click out the windshield or the window in the truck. And then I'd amass this collection of sometimes good, sometimes lousy, most of the time, pretty blurry photographs. But I remember being there one afternoon and just sort of turning two of them, you know, on top of each other and, and, and thinking, well, it looks quite pleasant. And then did it a few more times with some other photos and, made these two photo collages and then painted from them. And I I think I wandered around in sort of a daze holding two of them out to anyone in the grad house that would sort of notice that I was standing there Mm -hmm. (laughs) thinking, what, what have I done? You know, I wasn't quite sure what had happened and I, it was exciting because it, it built off of that practice in the field and, and, this interest in flatness that Demon Corn was really good at. You know, he was taking landscape, he was taking light, he was taking architecture, and he was collapsing all these things into these fields. And that's what happens when you put two landscapes in competition with each other. They can't go 
deep in space and they just sort of resolve as flat. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that landscape painting class and then these photos and then that, that kind of uh, moment of I made these tiny paintings, like five by six inch paintings or something like that, and wandered aimlessly through the grad studios looking for someone to tell me that they were worth anything because <laughs> I wasn't sure. And again, I, I realize we haven't even mentioned any of this, but obviously um, halfway through, you should definitely go and check out <laughs> the work that we're talking about because it's all up on your site. Um, oh, yeah. And again, there's a there's a bunch of these. <laughs> and I think, again, it really kind of starts to become a interesting, you know, where you kind of divide your time into, you know, representation and then these kind of abstractions. And again, just kind of it seems like kind of more and more focusing on you know, your experiences rather than, you know, kind of like what you were doing before, like you were saying, kind of paying tribute mm-hmm. to a specific way of working. I mean, um, did you kind of continue like this dual kind of a, a approach in terms of like what you were working with? And I, again, I, I realize there's seven questions in there, but <laughs> this, this, this series is the one that you want to having for your, your exhibition that, that kind of wrapped, um, that experience in graduate school, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And they took about a year and a half to, to materialize. I mean, I, I did what, what you should, I guess, in graduate school, I was trying to paint differently and draw differently and make different kinds of prints and pull from different sources and took the new media class and took the installation class. And I don't know if I was the strongest (laughs) in those, in those other disciplines. Like personally, I don't think I was, I, I got some good uh, pats on the back and encouragement but there were people who I thought were just lapping me. And, you know, in my mind, I thought I'm going to go to grad school and, and paint for three years and, and just develop that craft and uh, my sensibilities about it. And it wouldn't have happened in the way that it did if I didn't take that deviation, you know, trying to break the emulation of deep and corn. And I kept getting, you know, there were hints of it (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. probably putting it really mildly it was still pretty heavy-handed lifted from that that type of work and then people started talking to me about i think you included started talking to me about what it is that made me want to make anything categorize that try to make work about that and then you know through two landscape painting courses and all these photos wound up with the rurality series another nice made-up word Mm -hmm. that's difficult to say the uh thesis work yeah it i think about the ninth painting perhaps um in that series there's a couple of pieces of land that share the same sky so it's sort of stacked sky land land and in a critique that was you know faculty review that was talked about as being pretty deceptive and conflicting and and it made a lot of sense to kind of follow that trajectory so many of the thesis works ended up having that kind of shared sky treatment instead of a perpendicular shift or a 180, you know, quasi reflection type of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they persisted and, um, even shot a video or two and, and I think a couple of those wound up in the thesis show. You'd be surprised. The, the interesting thing was how willing people were to accept that they were accurate mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and go through the entirety of the exhibit and then come talk to me and say, that one is just, that doesn't seem possible. And I said, well, no, it's, you know, none of them are, <laughs> none of them are possible except if you paint them. And so we'd go back through and sort of, you know, pick them apart one by one. Um, cause some of them are a little bit more subtle. You have to think about 
you know, uh, well, drawing one instructor in me wants to say the diminution of objects in space. Like how big would you be by that object in the actual picture plane? And it's impossible for you to, <laughs> to be as small as you would be. And others are really overt where an overpass stacks on top of another overpass with the road in between them. It's just, a, it can't, it can't happen. Or a sidewalk in the middle of a highway. I had some guys from the uh, city road crew kind of cocking their heads at one of them, talking to each other softly. And I said, you got questions about the painting? And they said, well, we're trying to figure out who would put a crosswalk in the middle of a two-lane highway. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, they wouldn't. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that at all. This is what's going on. And, and we had to talk about the rest of the work. But, <laughs> yeah, it was that was a funny moment for sure. So, they, you know, they wound up sort of living their life. And I tried to make them after grad school, but at this point I kind of, I've lost sight of what they're supposed to look like. It seems like too, just kind of going back to our intro, um, just kind of talking about where you, you know, wound up, you know, in, in terms of kind of going back home, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like that connection to landscape, again, just kind of keeps taking hold. And again, I know personally just, I've had conversations with you where you're like, yeah, I'm fitting in like a night sky painting in the backyard. You know, I've got a half hour, but it seems like that becomes kind of something that's also, you know, you're kind of going to go out on a, a search and, you know, do 40 cloud paintings. And, <laughs> um, is that something that kind of is also kind of really kind of continued in terms of just, you know, kind of exploring that subject over and over, just kind of, again, kind of seeing what you can kind of learn from by immersing yourself in it. The cloud thing you're talking about was last summer and, and we just had an overwhelming amount of beautiful clouds. I mean, that sounds kind of uh, clunky in terms of vocabulary, but they're just beautiful. I, and, and there's something about if you, once you start, it's moved. So you're, you're lying right from the beginning. You can't, it, you know, summer sky is just kind of raking these things, sweeping them across. And we have this big east facing backyard. And, and uh, so I could just set up, you know, the easel. And once you've made the first one, then you've got all the paint for the second, third one. And then it's like, well, I might as well make a fourth one. And so you're making, you know, mm -hmm. maybe five or six in an afternoon that are real small. And that was just, uh, you know, one of those bursts of, uh, of production that mostly just fed my, uh, fed my needs and it wound up being kind of popular. People, you know, there's nothing difficult about cloud paintings in terms of likability. <laughs> it became something that people, it's like angels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of can't go wrong. It was fortunate that I couldn't stop looking at them and couldn't stop making them and thinking about them and, and just how much complexity is in their color in their form. But, but then, you know, the byproduct is you have a ton of them and, uh, people kind of like them and they kind of want them. So that was nice. But yeah, I, I tried to fit in any kind of landscape work I could do. I guess this feeds the most recent series, which would help you kind of bridge some gaps in your, mm -hmm. you know, in the recording. The yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where the are we at? Sure. Yeah. So when I was leaving graduate school, I had already lined up part-time work at Lakeland College and uh, didn't know what that would amount to eventually, but uh, now it's full-time work and it's fantastic. But um, I had just sort of worked my way into um, the wood shop of my late great-grandfather. He died in 76 and I never got to meet him, but as I mentioned, my great-grandmother 
earlier in the conversation, she, you know, was willing to let me work in his old wood shop as the, uh, as my studio. So my last semester at Carbondale, I was kind of like making arrangements and, and trying to figure out how I was going to pay rent and all that kind of stuff on the studio. And, um, I had these weird, you know, hour long or half hour long, uh, moments in the stretches in the studio where I thought, well, I'll just paint something, keep my hands moving and, and keep, keep me occupied and, and sort of, uh, practice. And so he had all these jars of hardware and hand tools and just scattered objects. And, uh, so I painted this jar of nails like eight or nine times, I think. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, didn't really think anything of it. It was just an exercise in keeping myself sharp, I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, uh, now, you know, uh, let's see, what is it? Six years later, um, that's been the focus of what I've been doing. So <laughs> I, I've taken his things and sort of categorized them and, and, uh, rendered them at the kitchen table at night after people have gone to bed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been really interesting to tr- try to, uh, find those relationships of like what you were talking about, community and family, specifically, you know, trying to know somebody through things they left behind, which could have had no meaning whatsoever, or they could have had a lot of meaning. Some of them he made for himself as a carpenter. Others were just, you know, store-bought, uh, means to an end, but I think all of that really kind of makes sense, especially for anybody that's kind of gone to like a, a resale shop and, you know, you see something that seems to be imbued with this. And I know imbued by the way, because I played Diablo in 97, <laughs> baby. Uh, <laughs> well done. <laughs> but, um, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of imbued with all of this importance in a way, you know, like you kind of start wondering about the people. And so I think that's one of the things that's really kind of, interesting and yet personal, you know, like a personal kind of uh, journey or recording of that, that idea maybe is, is that something that you kind of like sit and, and think about these things? I mean, do you again, maybe write about them? Cause that's something also that we've kind of hinted at or talked about a little bit. You're also someone that maybe writes and, and reads quite a bit too, but I mean, what kind of thoughts go into, you know, making one of these now, or at least kind of one of the more recent ones in these series? I painted his handsaw again, and I painted a lock joint ruler of his. You familiar with what I'm talking about? Wooden collapsible ruler. He, um, you know, there's all kinds of things he's left behind. Some of them are broken, and some of them are things that he would have used all the time. And mm-hmm. I, the, the ruler that I painted was intact instead of one of his fragmented ones. And then the handsaw seemed to have kind of a worn um, grip on it and made me think that it was probably one that he frequented. And so there's this connection that you're talking about that's very um, detached, right? It's, it's, I'm handling the things that he handled sometimes. I mean, the first painting rack I built in the studio, I used his hammer and his nails. He has like a one pound sledgehammer he left behind and I used that and <laughs> and nails which anyone um again sort of rolling their eyes listening to this it didn't last very long it was it was uh quickly revised but um you know there are these things that he used and um now I've got them and I'm sort of the keeper of them and then what do you do with them uh not all of them really require regular use some of them are parts of a greater set I can't use them. 
Um, but that ruler and saw seem to have as new objects that I painted um, a really tactile kind of quality. I can imagine him sort of using one in relationship to the other. And, and that was very pleasant that, you know, I, I don't get too uh, caught up in it while I'm uh, working, but sort of after the fact, when they sit as a group of paintings, rather than a group of objects, somehow they inform me of these things. So it's, it's not necessarily that at the time I'm totally aware of it because mm -hmm. some of them, some of them are pretty short intervals. Uh, and I think that's been one of the things I, I tried to carry over from landscape painting is, is this kind of looseness. And, um, like you said, the, they were imbued, right. With this, <laughs> this, this purpose or this meaning, but they also have this great worn down, aged quality to them. And that's what I love so much about the boxcars um, as surfaces. They seem like things that should be painted. Um, mm -hmm. They would translate well to paint. And, and then, you know, you have all these things with rust and chipped paint and kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Hand tarnished wood. That's, you know, his, his hammer handle has this slickness to it because of where he held it and worked it. Mm -hmm. But it, it's been sitting kind of inert for, uh, for 40 years. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's a really interesting thing to kind of give it new life in a, I suppose, impractical way. You're again, paying tribute in a way. Absolutely. But I, I'm curious then too, like in terms of just like setting these up, I mean, are you like setting them up in a particular setting and, and working from observation? Yeah, almost, almost all of them have been, staged and uh they're they're kind of you know they're very ramshackle it's you know sometimes you get these crisscrossing light sources and the dining room table light is not the most flattering light but in all honesty some of the early ones if you find them on the site that are on um his letterhead he had a carpentry business so he had his own letterhead some of those oil paintings were uh let's see i taped the object to a piece of matte board prop the mat board up against some uh, baby wipes <laughs> <laughs> try to find a good shadow and uh, and then use a, one of my landscape box easels at the table at the dining room table so it was, it was a pretty uh, humble affair it had none of the trappings of you know really serious <laughs> mm -hmm. lighting situations and and uh, underpainting it was pretty direct, which is, I think what makes them work. I think if they were really pristine, they would lose the translation of the object and they would lose the warmth of them. And, and there's an immediacy that they need. I think I'm, I'm figuring this out. Like you said, it's every day, every day I kind of question it, but I think that's what's going on. But as as we kind of as you kind of like look over the the some of the older ones, I mean, do you kind of see that progression as you're kind of working through it, where you're like, damn, you know, like the color is getting tighter. Um, I'm able to break these down in a way that I wouldn't have done a year ago. Is that evolution still kind of like happening as you kind of see these developing? And and again, to maybe tease it, since they'll they'll be shown at Jan Brandt. Yep, coming right up. It's the 11th from seven to nine is the reception, and then it's up until. January 9th of next year. So 
you know, it's straddling two years there. That's a, that's a pretty long, it's a long show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, uh, earliest ones like the jar of nails paintings were kind of environmentally staged, like, um, set it up on his workbench, let light come in through the studio window and paint the wood grain and paint the, um, the windowsill, you know, shadow and all that kind of stuff. It was put it in the place it belongs because mm-hmm. that's where I found it. And that's where it seemed like it should live. Uh, and then I started making them in the office. I set them up on this, uh, I think it's a bread box. I got secondhand, um, that I use to keep materials in. So I put a clamp light on them, throw some strong light on it. And then, um, I painted one in the garage, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and now with the works on paper sort of taking taking their kind of floating quality, I didn't want to make a background. They were objects on a white mat board, and so they would translate really well to the the 40-year-old letterhead. And then I started attempt that with the panel paintings and some of the canvas paintings. It's what if it just floats? What if it's just the thing and the thing alone or the thing with its shadow? Mm-hmm. Maybe some interesting, hopefully, um, brushwork in the background, some, some physical kind of, uh, overlay. Now the thing that's different about some of the newest ones is I've been cannibal cannibalizing my old paintings, like something that just didn't work at all that fought me the entire time I was trying to make it either from this series or a previous series, or just a crummy landscape painting. Those are all getting sanded down. And then you get these textures that wouldn't exist otherwise and colors that wouldn't exist otherwise. And that seems to have a certain kind of quality to it as well so it uh you know the earliest ones seem a little bit more like um that typical still life and then when you Mm -hmm. disassociate it from a space and just say well it's here on this flat surface and i'm making it into a flat image and that's all that you get to see Um, it's really been strange how people associate their family and their connections uh to an object that was you know, that didn't belong to anyone they knew. Mm-hmm. Um, I sold, I sold one to a fellow that was this really rusty pair of scissors on my great, great grandfather's letterhead. And I thought these are the most dangerous ones in the exhibition. Cause they, they're finite. They are about this man and his things. And those were the more interesting, you know, talked about uh, group in the show in April. And that sort of threw me cause it was, not my prediction. And then he said he bought the scissors because his parents both cut hair for a living mm-hmm. and they, they were nowhere near, um, you know, cosmetic shears, but he thought there was enough of a connection there that he should, he should own that. So it, it's, it's the conversations are really part of what makes the work so engaging to me and keeps me wanting to do it is you never know quite how you're going to strike a chord with somebody um, just by isolating these more or less uh, randomized pieces of like ephemera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I guess I'm curious, you know, in, like in terms of where you're at, obviously, you know, when you're kind of pushing for a big exhibition like this, all your energy is focused on that. Is it something where you kind of have other things that you've been kind of storing away in the back of the mind or like you're have a whole archive of things that you want to keep painting? I mean, how do you, <laughs> how do you decide what, what's going to be next or, um, what things you're going to be pursuing, uh, 
you know, as part of a New Year's resolution, you know, because that's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have no res- I have no resolve in terms of what I'm going to be doing next year. It's unknown to me. I'm going to um, redo them all again. <laughs> yeah, send them all off and make them into demon corns or something. Um, no, I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I do have a little back catalog of found paper collage um, that I've been working on in the office on campus, which is sort of, you know, the campus studio. And I do like to work while the students are working, you know, get them going and then wander off to uh, my side of the room and and try to touch up on something. Mm -hmm. So really, I suppose the answer is I I keep making and staging more of the belonging series, which again um, is that still life series we've been talking about. We just haven't named it. Um, And belonging of course is loaded with that kind of dual meaning of, someone's belonging and then belonging to someone or belonging to a place or just sort of being part of something greater. So there's, uh, that was an obvious use of the, of the term. And that is the title of the show coming up at Jan Brandt gallery, December 11th from seven to nine. If you want to come to the opening, <laughs> um, the, the, uh, landscape stuff, I don't think I'll ever be able to shake once I awaken in the middle of the night, and have a vision of what the rurality series can do again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll probably keep that going. I have a pretty sizable stash of photographs from that whole experience. And some of them, I, I just, you know, they're, they're so attractive as photographic collages. And just to me, I don't really show them to anybody else, but I look at them and think, Oh, why can't, why can't I picture how this could be painted anymore and it's just it, they i've lost feel of it i don't know i'm not sure where those will go i could see that stuff coming back you know just because a lot of times you know something will something will cool off and then it you know becomes really interesting again um and i'm, I'm curious too you know obviously having two children and a wife and you've kind of got that kind of life as well. I'm, I'm curious to see when that starts to really kind of make an influence as well. Cause I would, I would imagine maybe that that's something that again, kind of extends to some of the ideas that we've talked about in terms of family and kind of that kind of exploration as well. So, well, uh, our daughter's two and a half and some of her, uh, she likes to draw. I carry a pocket sized notebook just to keep track of all the various responsibilities I have. And if we get in a public place and she's kind of losing her cool, uh, we'll draw in the, in the notebook. And so I've torn out some of those and and they've found their ways into the found paper collages and they're, and they're pretty charming on their own kind of side Twombly Mm -hmm. treatments. And then, um, I think without the kids around, she's two and a half and, and Garrison's, uh, three months old tomorrow. So without them around, I don't think I would have had the nerve to paint this box of crayons mm-hmm. <laughs> as part of the belonging series. And I found out, I believe they were my grandmother's, not not either of the great-grandparents, but my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those early boxes of uh, 48 Crayola crayons. I, I did a little research and they started making that set in 1949. So... Um, it has the old logo on it and I, I didn't try to, I didn't feel the need to paint the uh, logo on there, but I have two images of that one with it closed and one with it open sort of staged in the same spot under the same lighting. And I was pretty happy with how that turned out. And it, because it wasn't his or my great grandmother's object, I didn't really feel like I should necessarily do it. And then I just thought, well, why not? You mm-hmm. know, it's, it would be something that, 
you know, Violet would kind of respond to. And so maybe that's, I don't know how desperate that sounds. <laughs> she, <laughs> you know, that you're trying to get her to be interested in what I'm doing. She knows I go off and I teach people how to draw and paint mm-hmm. and she wants to come by and draw and paint. So <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just trying to sucker her into what I'm doing by painting something she can relate to. Maybe a studio assistant in the future. Yeah. I don't really want her thinking, <laughs> I don't really want her thinking, uh, Oh, that rusty old saw looks like a great thing to, <laughs> to deal with. Let's go get that. You know, let's find that rusty thing. She really does like tools, though, which is is funny. Maybe I should paint some of her little tykes plastic tools or something. I don't know. Now you got me. See, I'm going to spin out on that for a while. Oh man, yeah. Well, I guess <laughs> I guess that would make sense. Um, but again, I I think that's only natural. But. I'm going to stop saying uh, little terms and stuff uh, <laughs> and, and just throw it out there again. So so this show is opening uh, the 11th of December, runs through January 9th, and Correct. I believe the exhibition starts at 7 p.m. So, again, I hope people come out to Jan Brand. Again, we've featured a number of different artists um, through Jan's gallery. Great space, usually a, a ridiculously fun time, festive. And and there's also another show up, if I'm not mistaken. Who's Who's showing with you? Yeah, Jeff Best has a show called Float in one of the galleries. And then Jan and three other artists collaborated on some pieces, mixed media pieces. And that show is called Trippin'. And I was in there when she was hanging it. And uh, the sort of the playfulness of that collaborative experience, if anybody uh, who's listening has, has done those types of things, is is pretty far and away different from all these like floating old tools in the other gallery next to it. So. Yeah, she's, I mean, she's worth the trip alone. She's a really enjoyable person to be around. I had a lot of fun talking with her while we were deciding the layout. And uh, uh, we should probably mention that it's uh, 1106 East Bell in Bloomington, Illinois. I don't know if we made it there. Yeah, well, there but, you go. I'll, I'll have a link on there, too, so people can find oh, well, it. Oh, yeah. So. That's, that's, you know. That's new wave. I'm, I guess I'm old-fashioned or something. So I guess come, uh, come meet Ben. Yeah. Look him, look him in the eye, shake his hand, um, and again, I, I thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me about all this stuff. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, Dave, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks once again to Ben Cohan for joining me again. Please check out his website, and of course, come check out his show at Jan Brandt Gallery this December 11th. Again, the show is entitled Belonging, and also that night is the group exhibition that Ben had mentioned, and also Jeff Bess's Float. So come check it out, meet some people, say hello. I'd also like to point out the same night at Demo Project in Springfield, there's an interesting show called Gifted, group show where all of the artwork is going to be given away at the end. And again, that runs from 6 to 8.30 p.m. December 11th, so please check that out. There's a post on the Facebook page, so if you want more information, check it out there. If you've been clicking through archives and you're starting to like this podcast or checking out some of the other ones, please be sure to also sign up and subscribe to the podcast. Again, it's available on iTunes and quite easy to stay up to date with current episodes. So please check it out in iTunes. And of course, if you like what you hear, leave us some comments, some feedback there and help support us that way. You can also help us by spreading the word through our social media fronts like Facebook. So if you like it, uh, please again, share the 
this post on Facebook, on Tumblr. Again, our account there is studio-break.tumblr. And, of course, uh, send us tweets. Send us cool stuff at Studio Break. And I guess I will note on a, a personal level, too, I've had a number of uh, guests that have been encouraging me to just kind of leave some of these little verbal flubs in there for comedic relief. So if you like that, please uh, let us know. Of course, before we wrap, I want to take a moment to invite you to check out the work of Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. Again, he's also a visual artist, a painter, and multimedia performance artist, and all sorts of good stuff. So go check out his website, SkylarMail.com. And last, I guess, but not least, if you want, you can check out some of my artwork. Um, I am, I guess, in this interview process. So if you're curious, you can check out my artwork at davidlinaway.com. And I guess that's about it for this week. Hope that you enjoy the episode. Hope to have some more of them with my uh, schedule clearing up uh, as teaching subsides a little bit. So hope they've been uh, appreciated or at least enjoyed. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you real soon.